I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is Jay Lipman, co-founder and president of Ethic, a data-driven technology platform that creates sustainable, passive investments for institutional investors. Jay founded Ethic in 2015 and has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Jay and being along for the ride since the early days as an investor when they came out of 500 startups. Jay's not a self-proclaimed eco-warrior. In fact, he's not in this business to shame people away from the negative impacts of exploitive companies, but to help every person think more deeply about their own values and how those may or may not be reflected in their portfolio. The real power of Ethic as a tech platform is its ability to move us towards this more ethical future by better understanding ourselves and by more deeply understanding the broad macro risk from traditional investing. It doesn't usually factor things such as data hacks or plane crashes or corrupt leadership, to name a few. Jay's background has some traditional financial market experiences, but his passion for an integration of one's values into their broader investment structure started much earlier for him. In fact, right out of university, through some pretty amazing experiences traveling throughout Eastern Africa. You know, to really step back into, you know, talking about my background, obviously not American, uh, come from, from the UK. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> um, I think that, you know, very early on, the social consciousness was something that I was aware of, wanting to help with. And uh, the first step that I took to really implement that in my life was after high school, where instead of going to university, I booked a one-way ticket to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, uh, thought, you know, I'm pretty naive. I'll go save the world by myself, figure it out. Uh, ended Why up- Why there? Uh, it was somewhere that I, it was a combination of, you know, not knowing too much about uh, Eastern and Central Africa. It was stable enough, uh, and it is actually a, an amazing stable country, um, but there being a need, um, and there being those that needed support, uh, and so, uh, finding a project and actually when I arrived I realized the project I had been assigned to actually didn't need my help so uh, it was a quite an affluent school and so after the first day there I realized this the school actually didn't need the things that I could provide and so I found another project which was actually an orphanage about an hour and a half two hours away by a small bus called Dala Dala which has about 12 seats but carries about 32 people and multiple chickens and goats and I um you know, actually ended up getting malaria quite quickly. Oh, goodness. Uh, actually on my first day. Oh, gosh. Um, but didn't realize this until about two or three months in. And then was, you know, fortunately, if you are privileged enough to be able to afford the medicine, which I'm uh, very fortunate that I was, I actually ended up being okay. Um, but my experience there was that, you know, the naive nature of an 18-year-old from a privileged country, from a privileged background, thinking that they can go and make a difference by themselves was actually shattered quite quickly. And I realized quite quickly that the privileges that I do have mean that I can actually go and affect the systems if I get an education and go into large industries and actually change the ways that a lot of people are affected by a lot of these large systems. So I did go to university, studied, ended up in finance and realized that finance is such a powerful lever to pull, uh, especially in the capital markets, because if you change the ways that companies interact with the resources they utilize, if you can make that resource interaction responsible versus unresponsible, you can actually increase the well-being of individuals and the environment at a massive scale. Mm. And so that's kind of my realization at that age and that stage was that if you have the privileges that I had 
to use them to try and change a larger system that people in that environment didn't actually have the privileges to do. So that's great. Yeah. Are there any, uh, so are there any experiences, whether from Africa or growing up in the UK, um, that really stick in your mind that have been formative for how you think about things? Um, some of my heroes talk about like life principles, things that kind of their, their own personal guiding North stars. Um, but they've been shaped kind of from our own experiences. Um, are there any of those for you um, that uh, that you kind of recall on a regular basis? I think being fortunate enough to have traveled mm-hmm. and being privileged enough to have experienced a lot of different cultures and, and see a lot of different uh, countries is that you realize that everyone is actually very similar and has the similar drivers and motivations and, and needs and that there isn't this separation. I think that when you know, you do become more uh, constrained, you stand uh, one place for a long time, it's easy to see things as, you know, this is our community, this is our country, and others are other. Mm. But being really fortunate to travel at a young age and spend time living in other cultures at an early age, you realize like everyone is on the same journey just to actually try and help their community and actually is driven by the same things, which actually led me to want to do more work at a global scale to help people at more of a global scale and change those systems to be able to help and help those people that don't necessarily have the same opportunity to help the communities at that macro level. Yeah. So then you went to university, studied finance, started off in that career, which it's great. I mean, I think um, to have this sense of purpose beyond, beyond, beyond profit. um, But because the markets are pretty, pretty uh, impactful uh, and, you know, being in that world, um, personally, you, you start to amass your own wealth uh, and, and a certain uh, career path that, that's pretty intoxicating and can kind of entrap people oftentimes where you're like, you're, you're growing and maturing in this. What, what led you to kind of put that aside um, and step away from that and to build this scrappy startup? It's a good question. I don't think anyone is sane when they make that decision. <laughs> There's always a little bit of uh, insanity yeah. uh, and Which a little bit of yeah. hope. Um, yeah. But to go back, actually, I didn't study finance. Okay. Um, so I studied, my intention was to study politics, philosophy, and economics with the idea that um, having read a lot in high school about these d- different subjects was that philosophy would give me a moral compass. Mm-hmm. Politics would help me think about things on a political level and on policy level. How do we actually have that global international uh, cooperation to actually make change and then economics is the way that the actual world actually works right markets finance and economics um, i actually ended up just studying politics because ppe or politics philosophy economics is a very difficult degree to get into uh, <laughs> which sadly i did not get into um but that was my intention um and i did end up going into finance and the disillusionment that i uh, realized was that not only was the creation of value that I was a part of not aligned with the values that I had in that there was almost an element of alchemy to it which was we're going to use these very complex esoteric investment structured vehicles to create capital appreciation out of almost nothing right and it is very intelligent people applying incredible levels of intellect to essentially make money worth more money and what the value of that experience gave me is that going into that specific part of the industry actually gave me a wide breadth of all asset classes and all types of investors and all types of individuals and gave me the understanding to say, actually, if I was to apply this skill set that I have to another section of the industry, I actually have a lot more impact. And I was very fortunate to meet 
two far more intelligent co-founders than myself who knew how to implement that at scale using technology and uh, structuring. And the three of us were quite confident and fortunate knowing that we had three quite unique skill sets that together would allow us to create something that we didn't believe really existed that would accelerate the transition to sustainable investing, which is what we what we do at Ethic. Yeah. So for context, when when did the three of you come together? How long ago was that? I'd say it was kind of around mid 2015, okay. late 2015. And we were really fortunate that early on we uh, met and spoke with uh, an individual called Ashby Monk, who's a professor uh, at Stanford, who wrote a piece called Organic Finance, which for us was kind of the ins- the inspiration behind what finance could be if it had the same transition as organic fi- uh, organic food had, which is essentially that you know investors need more transparency into where their money actually sits, and when they get given that transparency, they desire a cleaner alternative. Mm. Right, And that for us was an inspiration because we had a lot of experience working at the large banks, working with the largest investors, and to be able to utilize that knowledge with the skills that we had could allow us to work together to create something really unique, which is what we believe we've done at, at Ethic. That's really neat. Well, so 2015, I mean, that's five years ago. That's quite the rocket ship. Uh, I'm without, I mean, I'm sure with its turns and shifts along the way. But so for... For you, if you look back to, to this point and where Ethic is, um, are there a couple of pivotal moments that you think were really helpful in uh, setting the course for the success of your of your company at this point? I think any founder that does have success that doesn't attribute a dramatic amount of that success to luck is <laughs> just kidding themselves. Right? You can, you can have the smartest people working on the best problem, but if the timing's wrong or you know the market momentum isn't in your favor. You can be two years too early or two years too late. And in venture, two years is it's a long time. more time than you have, right? Yep. We, for a long time, really struggled to get traction because in 2016, sustainable investing was not something people wanted, not in the amount they want it now. Uh, I'd say about 18 months ago, a massive shift happened in the market where essentially the myths of sustainable investing just seemed to unanimously get debunked, mm. which were that the returns were concessionary or that the data wasn't good enough or that everything was too structured and off the shelf. And it came actually in confluence with this recognition of the type of investing that we do, which is passive, uh, almost direct investing, uh, direct indexing, which replicates index exposure as a really uh, valid alternative to these index vehicles like ETFs and mutual funds. Yeah. And so we were very lucky to come to the market with a skill set that we don't believe had been brought to date but also the shift in the market in understanding that people didn't need to give up returns. People could have the right data and could be flexible and customized enough to actually reflect their values in their portfolios. And we've just been massive beneficiaries of that shift in the market. And that has been a massive catalyst for us. Uh, and then the partnerships we've been fortunate enough to uh, sign um, with the larger financial institutions, most notably Fidelity, um, to really plug us into that institutional level of um, kind of market knowledge and distribution uh, to work with advisors across the country, not just on the coasts or in these big coastal cities, but truly everywhere. Sure. Luck is an interesting way to frame it. And I think the, the coupled with that earlier when you were talking about the co-founders and the skill sets and coming together, uh, you had the foresight to see kind of what was needed in the market. And so, you know, early struggles are like, oh my gosh, is this going to make it? 
Uh, but getting to 2016, 2017, as the market's shifting, now people are kind of awakening to this reality. And they're going to, of course, look around and say, okay, who, who has something I can use that can help service this need? And you were ready. You were, you were primed uh, to kind of fill that need. And so, you know, fortunate enough to make those partnerships with Fidelity and others. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting because you think about politically what was going on. You think about economically what's going on. You've got the Vatican that's convening their, their massive conference. And they have a huge weight, if you think about globally and the amount of money that they manage. But also just the influence they have. And then you look at, um, I was curious of your perspective, uh, if you have one, on things of late, like the, uh, the CEO's council that came out with this, this letter um, that really is, is very provocative. Some have said uh, it's really not that revolutionary, but when you think about 180-plus CEOs of major corporations actually agreeing to a statement is, is pretty profound. Um, and what, what are your thoughts on that, and, and uh, how do you think that's going to help shape the market for tomorrow? I think if you look at what's driving the recognition of a lot of these massive institutional investors, what is making them actually shift the way that they prioritize the stakeholder versus the shareholder as the business roundtable discussion did, or these massive institutional investors like the Vatican or the Church of England that just came out with sure. this low carbon index, you know, a lot of it is a recognition that the taking more information into consideration about the way that you operate and about the way that you invest is just better investing. Like why would you turn down information? But it's also a means of mitigating risk. If you look at the kinds of risks that exist, especially environmental, ecological risks, the kinds of uh, assets that will become stranded, the kinds of supply chains that will be disrupted, the kinds of consumers that will shift the way that they consume if a company does not become a leader and a responsible provider of their services, these are all risks that companies are now recognizing they need to take seriously because the shift, I'd say, happened about a year or 18 months ago where you can even notice it on TV or in ads. You see the billboards. Everyone is advertising their sustainable, recycled, ecological, responsible options. You know, this hotel chain is getting rid of uh, straws. This um, you know, shoe company is making their sneakers out of uh, ocean plastic. And that is the basis of their advertising. And so the consumer if given two alternatives, right, the traditional option, which is made with the traditional practices, irresponsibly made, you know, uh, or less oversight into the production of that product or that service, or they're given the other alternative, which is simply the same price, the same product, but they know it's made sustainably or more responsibly, there's more consideration in the supply chain. Consumers are, without a doubt, shifting towards that sustainable option just to know. Mm. And companies are seeing that yeah. because they have the data necessarily sharing it but they they have that information to know oh wow when we actually put this you know cleaner healthier more organic or more sustainable more transparent product out there and price it the same everyone's shifting towards that yeah and that's driving that shift in demand and i think that that shift in narrative especially with the business roundtable which you talked about is incredibly powerful for everyone recognizing that there are multiple stakeholders to every business uh interaction you think about the supply chain to things that get produced and manufactured. You think about the workers in the supply chain throughout the country or throughout the globe and how people can be protected and people can have more oversight into making sure that they're um, just treated better and people want to be a part of that solution. Yeah. Well, and I think it's uh, it's interesting because uh, one of the things I, I found in just kind of my research uh, of you leading up to this was that you're, you've been described not necessarily as an eco-warrior, 
but more a champion of uh, ethical decision making. I mean, per- obviously, personally, you care about uh, the environment, um, but I think it's it's an interesting um, distinction to think about uh, being a champion of ethical decision making over and above just more of an activist um, uh, that's that's just angry. Uh, so, talk to me a little bit about that and why why that matters in in kind of how you and your partners have built uh, Ethic as a platform. It's a very good question, and I'd say that our mission is to accelerate the global transition to sustainable investing. And uh, we don't believe that you can accelerate the global transition to sustainable investing, work with the largest investors on earth, the most sophisticated investors on earth, by shaming them. By saying, I'm this very, you know, I'm a a perfect person. And and you are not investing correctly, you should feel shame, and that's going to drive you to transition a trillion dollars. We don't believe that shaming or negative energy or, or putting people down or making them feel like the other or outside or less informed is gonna actually drive that change. We think that helping people understand the risks that exist and that this is actually a better way to invest and that they're actually insulating the portfolios but also finding opportunities because of the companies that are gonna benefit from a changing environment and a changing uh, consumer demand spectrum actually means that these investors say, wait, this is just a better way to invest. Mm. And to be a part of that conversation and to know the language of the largest investors in the world you know, I do believe that I'm very ecologically driven, um, but to position myself as someone that walks in a room and is the eco-warrior in- immediately makes that person you're walking into a room with or that group or that investment committee that haven't necessarily had this conversation before feel like they're being judged. And that's not how you drive change. Yeah. Right? You drive change by including them and, and educating them and get, making them feel included and actually and providing them reasons to want to do this and the most powerful part, and we, you know, we talked about this on the, the panel yesterday, was the greatest success that we have at Ethic. It's sitting in a room with someone that has never considered you know, going fossil fuel free or never considered uh, investing in a, in a more climate responsible way. Sitting with someone that may be on a different end of the political spectrum, but connecting with them around the fact that we all actually want to mitigate risk. We all want to seek opportunity. We all want more information, more data. And when they realize what the numbers say, the, the money will go towards what the numbers say. And that brings you together and actually drives a lot more assets towards companies that are going to be a lot more responsible and has a lot more impact yeah. than going pointing fingers. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I know you, so I think I think you are an eco-warrior, but I think it's really a helpful distinction that you make because I think um, more often than not, especially more conservative traditional investors, uh, which kind of are the lion's share of ma- wealth managers uh, in the, around the world still, um, they just feel bludgeoned. Um, and oftentimes they're only provided products that maybe don't fit their value systems. Mm. Um, and what does it look like to, to, to walk into a room and just say like, look, we all have a value system and wouldn't it be awesome if we could better understand our own values, understand where our money is going and see if there's an opportunity to align what we care about with, with, with what happens with what happens in the world. And so I think that's a really good thing because at the end of the day, you're still going to be able to move forward what you what you care about most, uh, but you're allowing other people to kind of discover that for themselves and to join you on that journey. So that's a really cool, really cool distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to um, to shift a little bit and and talk about um, ethic and some of the challenges because um, I think I think it's uh, it's really cool. I think sometimes we get to this like, man, you got this partnership with Fidelity. You guys are growing. The the market's shifted in your favor. 
Uh, but it's not without its challenges, uh, even today. And so uh, as you look at 2020 uh, and the market's moving in a, in a good direction to, to support uh, this, this, this position, what are still some of the challenges that you see as a team, as, as a person um, that, we're, that we face as a society pressing into, into this more uh, idealized future? I can talk about the, the challenges that we face at Ethic and then I think some of the general challenges that are faced, um, sure. I think across the community, the investment community and generally the, the national and international community. But at Ethic, you know, we need to uh, hire very quickly. Uh, we're very fortunate to be in the position that we are and we, we are trying to hire as quickly as we can, but we have a very esoteric skill set that is required, which is institutional finance. Right? We work with very large investors, very sophisticated investors, but we need people with that skill set to be mission driven. Hmm. We're looking for, we're not looking for mercenaries, right? We're not necessarily looking for missionaries, but we're hmm. looking for people that really want to have excellence in their career, be operating at the highest level, but be incredibly mission driven and be driven by what this movement can actually achieve, which is pretty dramatic and you're already seeing it. And I think one of the things, one of the challenges that we see is, you know, people coming and saying, well, what difference is this making? What difference is that statement making in the news by that asset manager? What difference is, you know, the difference uh, of that investment bank saying they're not going to take people public unless they're, uh, take companies public unless there's a uh, woman represented on the board? Mm. Well, it, it's kind of, let's look at climate change as a living organism, right? It's a death by a thousand cuts. If all <laughs> these tiny infractions, all these tiny events happen, that's actually progress, right? And everyone points and shames and wants to jump on the negative bandwagon, but it's all progress. And I think that the the biggest argument that we get against us is like, what is the tangible output? Well, you're already seeing the tangible output because it's a movement that everyone's getting involved in. It's not just, you know, the scrappy startup like us. It's the largest asset managers, the largest asset holders in the world that are putting out statements saying, okay, this $40 billion uh, university endowment, we're going fossil fuel free. I think that was this week, right? Wow. And these trillion dollar uh, sovereigns that are saying, all right, we're done with fossil fuels. Jim Cramer, Jim Cramer this week, he, not an eco warrior, right? Saying, I'm done with fossil fuel stocks, right? That is the progress that we are having as a movement by providing the best data to be able to substantiate the investment decisions that underlie the portfolios that we build. But it's giving validity to everyone to actually be a part of the movement and, the, and move in the same direction. I think challenges on a more macro level, uh, there's still, I, I think, at an, at an international level, uh, the cooperation required by governments to actually create the solutions needed is something that is... Uh, proving to be a difficult thing to achieve. But I think that interestingly, you're actually going to see some countries recognize that there is now a real opportunity to become the leader globally in those solutions. And I think you're going to see some very large, not necessarily uh, typically democratic, democratically run countries actually take that opportunity and become the leaders because there's such a big financial opportunity to be that leader. Yeah. So... I think one of the things that, as I've heard you talk, um, there's this notion of profit. And so like you mentioned stakeholder engagement and, and I think sometimes we think about, so if you said a, if a purchaser is given two options, the traditional option versus this sustainably sourced and, and made uh, product more often than not, they're proving that they're choosing this. Uh, and I think historically it's always been about the price 
and how do we get the price as low as possible because that's what consumers care about. But if you think about price, it's an interesting thing. And there's this 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 term, true cost accounting. I don't know if you're familiar with it much, but I mean, I'm sure you are. But uh, this idea that like, yeah, it, it looks like it's a lower cost. Mm. But when you really factor in the total cost, when we really think about the role of business and community yep. and stakeholders and, and really like what it costs to make that shoe when you're underpaying your workers yep. or you're sourcing materials in an unethical way. Mm. Um, if you factor the cost of remediation into the, the manufacture of that shoe, it actually surpasses this shoe. Yep. How, how do we press forward? And like, do you have any thoughts or insights on this idea of true cost accounting? And like, how do we help consumers uh, that I think more and more are caring mm. about these things? They've cared for a long time. They just been, haven't been presented these options. How do we, how do we help them see uh, beyond the sticker price in the decision-making? There's an interesting approach to this that we quite like. Uh, and I don't want to speak necessarily on behalf of the the whole team, but this idea of uh, what is the carbon cost, right? There's the true cost, but, you know, just the simple carbon cost of uh, whether it's the food that we eat. You know, there's the calories in the back, but what is the carbon cost of lamb that's been flown in from New Zealand, right? What is the carbon cost of a pair of shoes that, you know, the cotton was picked in India um, where, you know, something, some crazy amount of pesticides are used to create that cotton. So there's that, uh, obviously, that negative externality, you know, and then that cotton is flown to Vietnam and it's set up in Vietnam and then finished in the US. Like, what is the carbon cost of that? And I think that it all comes down to transparency. Right? And we actually equate this to organic food again, right? Where, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't put their hands up and say, you know, I want acai bowls and, and quinoa. I'd never heard of either of those things 10 years ago. But people put their hands up 20 years ago and said, what are we putting on the, what are we putting on the plate for our kids? And that wasn't them saying we want organic food. It was them saying, right, we want, transparency and what you're seeing now is consumers say the same thing they're not necessarily saying i want a you know biodegradable shoe that was manufactured you know 30 miles from the city i buy it in but they're putting their hands up and saying where did the shoe come from what's the transparency i want to know and that's why you're seeing companies like everlane that are doing incredibly well because they're a transparency first uh clothing manufacturer and you know you go to the Everlane shop in New York or in San Francisco or in LA, and there's a 20, 30 minute line outside. Mm. Now that, if anything, is going to show you the kind of demand there are for just transparent producers of product. Yeah, And that I think is, you know, whether it's the true cost, whether it's the carbon cost, it's just consumers that want to know and the companies that can give them that transparency are going to succeed. Look at Sweetgreen. Yeah. Right. It has the name of every farm that they buy from on the wall and consumers love that. And that is actually kind of underlying this movement, I yeah. think. How do we, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think, I think one of the indictments that I hear um, as we think about just kind of, I think, global adoption is the consumer we're talking about mm. sometimes is more of a first world consumer yep. uh, that has the, uh, the ability to make these financial decisions. Mm. And so, because I think we have to balance uh, some of these. I finished a book recently by Howard Buffett, uh, 40 Chances, and mm. he, his foundation is really working to solve world hunger. And he addresses some of this, like this idea of locally sourced food and working with farmers and, um, but yet the complexity of the problem in that people are starving and we need low cost food in order to provide uh, enough food for people. So how do we, how do we balance this, this push that I think is a good push uh, with the reality that there are many in our communities that are suffering and it is a price thing. They, they need 
goods and services at a low price in order to just survive. Um, what What's the consideration there as we think about a push towards greater transparency, which ultimately might push some of the sticker prices up? Mm. How, do, how do we help people not, um, how do we satiate some of their fears? I think domestically, food security is a really interesting question, especially in the US, right, where a dramatic unsuspecting number of individuals go to bed hungry yeah. every day, right? The child poverty rate is actually very, very high. And yet 40% of the food produced in the US goes to waste. And if you ask someone in the climate community, you know, let's talk about drawdown, right? The, I'm not sure if you're familiar with drawdown, but you know, the, the best solutions to climate change, you know, you ask them, what are the things we could be doing as a society to actually address uh, climate right now, get rid of food waste, right? So that 40% problem could number one, actually go to feeding the people that need the food, mm. could actually drive down the costs because an oversupply means that prices come down. Sure. And could actually be addressing the landfill problem of food waste in accelerating climate change because of the production of methane. So we think there's actually this interconnection between a lot of the problems you're talking about and uh, corporate responsibility to actually drive policy to affect those changes. Now, a really interesting point is plastic. Now, if you actually look at plastic use, it's great that it is forefront in America. Everyone talks about their single-use plastic uh, problem, whether it's the cutlery, the you know the water bottles or the cups. And the reality is the most, the, the largest contributors to ocean plastic are coming from a few Southeast Asian countries that haven't got the facilities to actually handle the plastic waste. And, you know, most of the plastic waste that is ending up in the ocean is coming from a few rivers in those developing countries. Now, if the producers of that plastic waste were responsible for internalizing the externality of that plastic waste, you're going to see a massive shift in the <laughs> kinds of materials produced, well, yeah. right? And this, I think, comes down to it. It's like the corporate behavior is driven by what price they have to put on things. If the price incorporates the recycling, if the price incorporates the externality, I believe you're going to see a shift in corporate behavior. That's a little out there because you're really shifting a lot of the corporate model in that. But I think that fundamentally a lot of the problems we're talking about both internationally and domestically can be somewhat addressed yeah. by companies having to be more responsible for the problems that are produced by the products they're creating. Yeah, it's interesting because um, it sounds like the solution is internalizing the costs, so corporate responsibility, policy. Yep. And then and then really there's an opportunity. So yes, we need to address these things, but that's where entrepreneurs, much like yourself, can come in and realize something new to say, okay, what do we do with this this food waste and how do we how do we actually move it to people that need it at a lower cost? And so there's opportunity for disruption in the market and, and, uh, and innovation. Yep, exactly. Great. Well, earlier you mentioned something about one of your challenges is hiring. So I was actually curious uh, to kind of go back to that a little bit. Uh, in a very talent-constrained economy, um, what, are, what are you doing or what have you figured out? How do you find a mission-driven person that really gets finance uh, at an intellectual level? Because like, it's, it's a very specific skill, uh, but someone that can do that with a mission-driven uh, perspective. Um, have you guys figured out any ways or what are some ways that you're applying to, to really attract the right talent? We're very fortunate to have a lot of applicants for a lot of our roles because there's so many people in traditional finance that are, uh, that are genuinely impact-driven and want to be a part of a story like ours. And I think that, that we're inspired by that we do have to focus a lot on making sure that everyone is mission driven. So during the uh, hiring process, it takes quite a long time. They have to meet with a lot of the team. 
they have to fill out a very intensive questionnaire which asks them these kinds of questions. And then when we interview them, we know, or at least what they've said, are their impact motivations. And I think for me, a really important one is someone that's just joined our team, uh, Claire, uh, had a fantastic answer to this because we always say, you know, what does sustainability mean to you? It's an amazing question to ask someone because sustainability is such a general term. You know, sustainability in the work that we do at Ethic can be uh, climate oriented, it can be human rights, it can be social justice, it can be around the protection of the most vulnerable in society, right? So what does it mean to you? It's actually, number one, it's telling you what they care about, but it's also telling you whether they're thinking about these things in their everyday life, because if they are, they're typically mission-driven. And her answer was fantastic, where she was just at the office, where the I believe the uh, water system had broken down, and so the office manager had ordered something like 2,000 water bottles to the office, and she put her hands up and just said, what are we doing? Like, why, why are we just filling the office with these single-use plastic water bottles when there's so many other things we could do. We could buy a water filtration system. We could, this is just ridiculous. And it's, it's that cognizance of the everyday decisions that we make and the impact that they have. And that's what we look for in the people that we bring on. And the kind of impact stories that we hear from our team that we hire are incredible. It's interesting. Because they see these opportunities to be better, see these opportunities to be conscious consumers, to be conscious capitalists, conscious investors. And you hear it from you know our head of quantitative investing or you hear it from our head of uh, people operations or our, you know, uh, biz dev and sales. Like it's incredible to hear these stories from people you would never suspect are actually really driven by impact. That's great. And it seems like by asking those questions and really being intentional, they're bringing themselves to the organization and then driving the organization forward uh, into a, yep, into a, exactly. yeah, that's great. So I would be remiss because I do think um, what you do is complex. And for some people, it's really hard to wrap their minds around. So I think one of the best ways to, to do that is through story. So you've mentioned it, story, 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 story. Are there a couple of stories or at least one that you would care to share that you think help illustrate uh, in a profound way what ethic is trying to do and, and why it matters and why you're really excited about, uh, what, about the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think in our mission to mainstream sustainable investing, we try not to be constrained by geography. Right, so we spent a lot of time in the Midwest. We spent a lot of time in the South with these families and these institutions that are, are desperate to have an impact with their capital as well. Right, This is not just a coastal conversation. And one of the things that we see over and over again when we try and gauge what people prioritize is because a big part of our process is developing a mission statement for each family, for each organization, for each institution, for each foundation, so that they know what their North Star is. Right, What do they prioritize? How much do they prioritize it? What's the data underlying it? And the most powerful part of that process is what stories actually exist within their priorities and how do they connect, right? So a really interesting one is that, you know, it's no surprise that working with these foundations, working with these families, if people have children, they typically care about education. Interesting. And education is a really interesting priority because we work in public equities, right? Investing in the largest companies. You can't invest through our portfolios in K through 12. You can't. But if you look at education and you look at the individuals at a human level, who is represented by education. What do you care about education? You care about kids, right? And if you care about kids, then you probably care about the air quality those kids are living in. Because if those children are living close to a coal power power plant and they're consuming more toxic chemicals in that air, that directly associates to a lower educational attainment for infants and adolescents. Science. It's not our opinion. It's not political. It's not us taking a position. It's just saying, if you care about kids, you care about education, you care about the air quality, you care about the water quality as well. 
right? Because we all know, Flint, Michigan, what happens when you have lead or other chemicals in water? It directly affects the brain development of infants and adolescents. It's, it's simple science. So if you care about education, you care about water quality, you care about pollution, you care about the companies that should be responsibly providing cleaner water and actually cleaner air. Another example is private prisons, right? How do private prisons and the criminal justice system affect education? Well, if a child is growing up with one less parent in the household because of a systemically racist criminal justice system that is improperly imprisoning people unjustly, then they are going to have a dramatically lower educational attainment. And that's just that's just data, right? Just Science data. numbers. And that's what gets people excited. You explain that and they're like, I care about education, now I care about these other things because I understand how they all connect. And that, I think, has, has been a, a really big breakthrough for us. Yeah, it's really, that is, it's a profound differentiator, right? We're not making, mm. we're not making money decisions. Uh, at the end of the day, we are, where we put our money. Yep. But we're starting with uh, the simple questions of like, what do you value most? Yep. And then from that, allowing people to go on a, on a, on a journey, and, exactly. and helping them discover the interconnectedness of the decisions they're making, what they care about, where their money's invested. And then like, what I've experienced, and I'm sure you do time and time again, is just people coming, becoming almost more alive yes. to the reality of like, wow, I, I, thought I, I thought I gave money over here to support whatever, education. Yep. And now I can see this unbelievable way to align what I care about uh, with, with all of my assets. Yeah. yeah. So it's I, pretty profound. The, 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 biggest joy that we have is getting an email from someone that has told us that climate change isn't real. They've told us in meetings, don't talk to us about climate change. Don't talk to us about this issue. That's not an issue. And a lot of it is actually, you know, we spend a lot of time in areas of the country that we don't believe other asset, sustainable asset managers are spending time in, where people will say to us, look, I am part of this political party, climate change. I don't believe in climate change. And that then we explain to them education. We explain to them the relation to air quality and water quality. They then send us an article the week later saying, this is crazy. I just saw this news article about water <laughs> pollution. This is so crazy. They become advocates yep. because you've spoken to them on their level. And the thing is, when everything is so politically charged, this is not about being on one side or the other. We have so many clients on both sides of that aisle because when they understand that we're all fighting for the same thing, to protect children or to protect the vulnerable in society, People want to get involved and they want to be a part of that solution, regardless of the political affiliation. I think that is how you break down that barrier. And that's how you actually have massive change, not just with half the country. Jay Lipman is the president and founder of Ethic, who truly believes that we're all interconnected. And when we understand these connections and we have the data to support it, we'll begin to see that we generally are after the same things, just sometimes using very different labels and describing them. To learn more about their work, visit ethic.investments. And if you like what you've heard, Drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.